Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Kentuckian Podcast. Enjoy. Hey, y'all, this is going to be an episode just for fun. We cover a lot of deep, sometimes somber topics on this podcast, and I thought that it'd be a good idea to do a more lighthearted, fun episode. As most of you all probably don't know, <laughs> April is generally considered Confederate History Month. And especially if you study that period of history, you may at times wonder, as we often do with other periods of history or even in our own past, what if this had gone different? What if we had made a different decision? What if somebody had won this battle that had lost it? And so on. A lot of different scenarios we could go with there. Today, I want to briefly explore, just for fun, like I said, just to kind of give you a different perspective and get you thinking a little bit, what might have happened if the Trent Affair, which was when a U.S. Navy warship stopped a British mail packet, which is just a ship, and forcibly removed two Confederate envoys during the war between the states. What if that situation went different? In our timeline, this action outraged the British and almost sparked a war between the Union and Great Britain. But it was eventually smoothed over. The envoys were released to go to Great Britain, and the rest is history. Now, this fictional scenario was all guessing, of course, based off my knowledge of the period and such. And it could take many different avenues, and we could go to many different levels of detail and nuance. This is just my brief take on what might have happened in this case. So take a journey with me to a what-if of history. Imagine that on November 8th, 1861, the USS San Jacinto stops the RMS Trent and removes by force the two Confederate envoys, James Murray Mason and John Slidell. The British outrage at what became known as the Trent Affair was not cooled or smoothed over by the actions of the U.S. Secretary of State William Seward. What if the Trent Affair led to something more? In early 1862, Nashville is captured in the West by the Union Army after the fall of Fort Donelson and Fort Henry, and the Union Army pours into Tennessee. General Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia hold in the East against the Army of the Potomac, but the Confederate government in Richmond knows it needs European support to win a prolonged war with the heavily industrialized United States of America. The Trent Affair greatly sours the relationship of the United States and Great Britain, especially when the U.S. refuses to release Mason and Slidell. But Great Britain still refuses to outright support the Confederacy. However, in early 1862, the Confederacy decides to send two more envoys aboard the blockade runner Cecile. She is attempting to, to break the United States Navy's blockade to meet with the British warship Hood. The Cecile managed to slip through the U.S. naval blockade and rushed to meet up with the Royal Navy vessel. It was pursued by three U.S. Navy vessels, but believed it had lost them. However, as the Cecile was unloading its precious cargo, a United States naval ship came rushing out of the mist and immediately opened fire. The hood was hit several times, killing several of her crew and her captain. After a brief but intense fight, the U.S. Navy ship was severely damaged and sank quickly. The hood, however, was almost crippled, but the Cecile managed to help it get all the way back to England. Outrage swelled to new heights in Great Britain, and while the Crown officially stayed neutral, British troops were sent to Canada and British warships began increasingly to ply the waters of North America in preparation for invasion. Despite the outrage at the United States, Parliament and the Crown refused to take direct action for several months, and the war progresses basically as it had up until the end of April 1862. However, 
At the end of this month, as two of the forts defending New Orleans are about to fall to the United States Navy, a flotilla of British warships launched a surprise attack, devastating the U.S. naval forces around New Orleans and sending the remainders of the fleet running back up the coast. Another British flotilla engages U.S. Navy ships close to Charleston, once again scattering them. Both flotillas bring some troops and material aid, while British troops attack the U.S. border with Canada. The local militia in the border states up north melt away before hardened British grenadiers, with British forces seizing defensible areas and going so far as to seize most of Maine, and they immediately begin to build defenses. The official declaration of war is sent from the British embassy in Washington the same day as these attacks, citing uncivilized war against their brethren and direct affront to the British Empire and the crown itself through direct military action against Her Majesty's ships and people. All Union offensives immediately dry up and the Union Army and Navy start consolidating all resources to defensive positions while rushing troops to their northern borders, hoping to prevent a British offensive towards New York City or Philadelphia. What little public support existed for the war in the first place quickly dried up. The United States Congress, fearing Confederate and British forces on the Capitol's doorstep, consider impeaching Lincoln. This is stayed, however, when Confederate forces focus on freeing Confederate territory still held by Union forces, particularly Nashville. They want to do this in order to kick the Yankees out of Tennessee and to open up Kentucky to liberation. Nashville was a veritable fortress, promising to be a difficult campaign. However, a number of black volunteers and other black Southerners in the area proved vital to breaking the defense of Nashville. After this highly publicized event, publicized event, along with some other smaller incidents, and with support from various Confederates, including Robert E. Lee himself, black Southerners are allowed to officially enlist, enlist in the Confederate Armed Services. As the war progressed, the Confederacy originally intended to take a very lenient attitude towards the United States when they sued for peace. But the Confederacy started to look much less favorably on them when the many violations of citizens' rights were revealed as the Confederacy started to liberate some of its captured territory. The Confederacy now determined to soundly break the Union. With the extra resources and support of the British Empire, the Confederacy builds more advanced ironclads and was able to perfect what became known as the Hunley class of attack submarines. With the CSS Hunley still being the first successful military submarine, but not getting sunk after sinking the USS Housatonic, as happened in our timeline. France, already sympathetic to the Confederacy, after finding out about the U.S. government's abuses of its own citizens and those in occupied territories, declares war on the United States, immediately sending material aid and warships. British troops advance steadily from the north, while British and Confederate troops move quickly in the west and east as support and morale dried up in both the Union ranks and Union territories, with Lee crossing the Potomac to surround and attack Washington City, as it was known then, or D.C. as we know it today. As the combined British and French, Confederate British and French navies crush the majority of the remaining U.S. Navy warships, the U.S. government sues for peace and agrees to leave Washington, liberate Maryland, recognize the Confederate government as legitimate, and forfeit claim to almost all territory west of Illinois and Kansas. The peace talks take place in Richmond, with the Queen herself arriving in Virginia on the newly repaired and refitted HMS Hood to sign the treaty. The landscape of North America is forever changed. The North, both never benefiting from the devastation and sacking of the South, while also suffering serious defeats, including the loss of most of her Navy 
and the income from tariffs placed on southern exports languishes, trying to recover from the war and build up its industry once again. The South soon enters a golden age. West Virginia never separates from Virginia, and the Cherokee, many of whom served with the South, form their own Cherokee nation in most of what is today Oklahoma. Slavery continues for a few years after the war, ending officially in 1884, while race relations were never soured by the defeat of the Confederacy and the devastation and degradation of the South during Reconstruction, leading to gradual integration of all blacks into society as equals. Booker T. Washington is still very influential as a leader in the South, doing much to ensure that racism is totally eliminated, and George Washington Carver becomes one of the richest men in the South with his fantastic inventions and his clever use of widely available products. The Confederacy, seeing the tenuousness of national defense in a mostly agrarian economy, encourages increased industrialization, and Southern technology, including military technology, becomes the cutting-edge technology in the world including major advances in submarine technology, which they were pioneering, in which they pioneered. The Cherokee Nation requests permission to join the Confederacy as a state in the late 1800s, and westward expansion happens much as it did in our time. In 1892, instead of 1895, the Cuban rebellion against Spain begins, and the Confederacy is very sympathetic to their cause. In attempting to encourage Spain to give the Cubans their independence, the Confederate president sends a Confederate Navy fleet to Cuba, where one night the Spanish opened fire on one of the Confederacy's dreadnoughts after a miscommunication. The Spanish-Confederate War breaks out in 1894, with the Confederacy soundly defeating the Spanish. Newly liberated Cuba grows and joins the Confederacy in 1900. The Philippines are granted independence by the Confederacy almost immediately, but they maintain a military presence in the islands at the request of the new but troubled Philippine government. The North during this time still languishes in poverty, but starts to grow again once the South begins trading with them once again in 1880. Somewhat stifled by their new size restrictions, significant parts of the North turns into urban sprawl, but the new capital, in the already fairly conservative New York City, works hard to improve the condition and society of the North. In 1914, war breaks out in Europe. By the end of 1915, the Confederacy declares war on Germany and the Central Powers, but gets caught in the slog of the war when the Bolshevik Revolution takes place in early 1916, taking Russia out of the war before they had managed to weaken Germany significantly. The United States originally sent some aid to Germany, but quickly stopped in an effort to strengthen its relationship with the Confederacy. The war ended in, 19, in early 1918, by which time the Confederacy was disgusted with and tired of the war. It didn't take much part in writing the terms of surrender, which once again sought to punish the central powers as it did in our timeline. In a weak act of protest of what it saw as unjust treatment, the Confederacy refused to sign the Treaty of Paris and instead signed a separate peace agreement. After this, Confederate relations with Great Britain and France soured somewhat. The Confederacy in the United States become much more isolationist to the world and closer to each other after the Great War. And while the Great Depression still happened, it did not affect the Confederacy as bad since they refused to enact the punitive tariffs which locked up the global economy in our timeline, and the United States also followed suit. Most of the world was climbing out of the Depression by the mid-30s, but Germany was still suffering due to the Treaty of Paris. 
Nazism rose much as it did in our world, with Soviet Russia and Stalin having a somewhat stronger hold on their own power. World War II kicks off, and both the Confederacy and the United States refuse to get involved. After a surprise attack on the joint USCS naval base at Pearl Harbor, the Confederacy and the United States enter the war. The Confederacy took charge of the war, straining relations from time to time with Britain and France. They also refused initially to supply the Soviet Union, while flooding Great Britain with materiel. Suddenly, however, the Confederacy decided to ally with the Soviet Union officially, sending them material and many, many military advisors. Stalin, who was much more desperate for help by this time, grudgingly allowed the advisors in, and on May 12, 1943, large portions of the Red Army rebel against the Soviet Union after being organized and helped and directed by the Confederate military advisors. Over the next few months, fighting and reorganization occurs in Russia and various other parts of the Soviet Union, while the German army, hoping that the Russians will not be conducting major offensives anytime soon, draw troops to Italy to try and stop the new Allied offensive there. In early 1944, the new Russian government and its allies launch a new offensive against the German Eastern Front, greatly straining German elements there. In June, the invasion of Normandy happens. Using advanced armored support, the beachheads are established after brief but intense fighting. The Imperial Japanese Navy all this time has been trying to counter the advanced Confederate Navy. Though they were tempor temporarily crippled by the attack on Pearl Harbor, the attack did not hit all the important targets to cripple the Confederate Pacific Fleet long term. The Philippines were still conquered, but were able to put up a much more effective long-term guerrilla war against the Japanese. The war in Europe, however, becomes more complicated. Hitler, who had, a, had, a better, who had become a better leader and strategist due to different circumstances in World War I, particularly, realized his mistakes in the Battle of Britain, where he missed a golden opportunity to annihilate the Royal Air Force, and he decides to change up research, manufacturing, and military priorities in Germany. The German war machine soon starts producing more reliable and high-tech equipment, slowing Allied advances in France. General George S. Patton, Jr., overall commander of the Allied offensive, butts heads with General George C. Marshall, the supreme Allied commander, quite frequently, but they tend to make a very effective team on the battlefield. Germany now puts up better defensive equipment and strategies, prolonging the war, even going so far as to push back the Russian offensive temporarily on the Eastern Front. <coughs> In the Pacific, the rejuvenated Confederate Navy starts dealing major defeat after major defeat to the Japanese, and in 1945 ends the war after the detonation of several nuclear bombs over major Japanese cities. Despite the reorganization and technological advances of Germany, Confederate technology quickly catches up, and the threat of nuclear strikes causes the German defense to collapse. Germany surrenders in March of 1947 after Adolf Hitler is killed fighting with the remnants of his SS battalions in Berlin. Germany is divided much as it was in our timeline, but Berlin is held completely by the Confederate military. It's not split amongst the main Allied powers. This move, along with the possession of a nuclear arsenal, sours relations with most European nations, and a soft Cold War occurs after a failed attempt at forming the UN, or United Nations. While there is still an arms race, it focuses more on conventional weapons, as nuclear weapons, while kept by several nations, are generally frowned upon and avoided. That being so, there was much less of the fear of nuclear apocalypse in this timeline, particularly as there was no other superpower that was actively building up as many as they could or anybody threatening to use them.
The Chinese Civil War ends mostly the same, with the Chinese Communist Party kicking the nationalist government to Taiwan, but the Chinese Communists are much weaker and have fewer allies, especially since Russia has taken a much different course in this timeline. Japan recovers very slowly, but the Philippines has several major changes after the war and starts on its way to become a fledgling power in the Pacific Rim. The war in Korea never happens, as it was never split between the communist and the free world, and the Chinese have no desire to invade Korea either. The French, refusing to give Vietnam its independence, end up in a situation much like the pre-Vietnam War era in our timeline. However, the Confederacy is very hesitant to support the French in this case, souring relations with France even more, but is still worried about the spread of communism, with Ho Chi Minh as the leader being particularly concerning to them. Around this time as well, Taiwan, bitter that the Confederate government refused to back an invasion of mainland China, actually joins with the Red Chinese, forming a hybrid communist nationalist government that eventually comes to resemble fascism, becoming what historians in that timeline know as collective fascism in general and what they referred to as Sinoism in China's particular case. China advances very rapidly after this, jump-started by the theft of some technological advances of the Confederacy in the United States. China rises quickly to being a world power, turning more and more to resemble old imperial China. China also consolidates allies in the Orient and limited allies in Europe. Russia struggles to find purpose after World War II, but in the late 60s really found new focus after a spiritual revival of the Orthodox Church and advances quickly to being a leader among Eastern European countries. It's considered by most to be something of a loose cannon, uh, by most Westerners anyway, as while outwardly friendly, Russia's intentions are not clear, refusing to officially ally with any Western countries, and also have begun, have began conducting rapid military buildup. The war on terror never happens either. After the bombing of the CSS Southern Star in 1991, the Confederacy annihilates most terrorist cells very quickly. There was never as much of a threat from them either, since most of the world got their oil from America or Russia, or outright bought oil fields in the Middle East. Nuclear power was much more in vogue in this timeline as well. Especially since these countries never gained as much influence, and they never had as much influence in the terrorist world, because the Soviet Union was never there to supply them with weapons and other materiel. In 1995, China crowned a new emperor, changing their system mainly in name only, as a de facto emperor had been in power for several years in China. Socialism and communism had become basically relics of the early 20th century. However, some European countries were starting to favor monarchy, and in some cases even new forms of feudalism. In 2021, the world stage looks much different. China is another superpower with the Philippines and Japan serving as the main deterrence to China's aggression. Europe is divided with many fiercely independent countries, and North America once again enta avoids entanglement in what many believe to be the lead-up to a third world war. There have been few conflicts since World War II, and many believe peace cannot be maintained much longer. I hope that you've enjoyed this alternate history adventure. As always, feedback is very helpful, especially when I try something new like this. If this is something that you all like, let me know. Something you'd like to see more of, be, be sure to, to get that message to me, if possible. There's so much more that you could explore with something like this. I think it's a lot of fun for those that study history. I think they generally find these sort of 
um, what if scenarios interesting. Um, you could have taken it a different direction. You might not agree that that would be what would happen in general. Obviously, it's, it didn't happen, so it's more of a, an opinion. Again, I try and base it off of my knowledge of history and, and my understanding of the time as best as possible. Um, or, I mean, you could even pick a different event or different battle or different whatever to examine under the lens of what if. And you could do that for basically any major event, any event in history. What if... What if Adolf Hitler had been accepted into art, into art school instead of rejected? Would World War II have ever have happened when Nazism have risen in Europe, you know, in Germany? Um, that's just one random example that you could easily talk about. has a lot of implications, and it can be very interesting. But again, this was mainly just for fun. I hope you found it entertaining. Um, if you, uh, or I'll get to this in just a moment. Uh, we will be back to more normal episodes next week, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Remember that your all support does, it means so much to me. Uh, please share on social media, tell others, listen to other episodes, so on. What, whatever you can do, I, it means a lot, and it does make a difference. Never forget that. If you have suggestions, comments, feedback, whatever, please reach out to me. Um, that's always important, and I hope that you all feel like you can do that. Even if you have questions about, you know, why I think certain events would have happened a certain way, I'd love to talk to you about that. There's... A lot of justification, some justification I had in my script here, but I, I didn't cover it for time's sake. And talking about support and, and how much you all mean to me and everything, um, there is, you know, as always, if you'd like to support me in a more personal way, help make sure that I can keep doing this. My Patreon will be linked below as well. This has been Ryan H. Dalton of the Kentuckian. Remember, folks, as long as you and I are doing the right thing, we'll make a real difference in this world. The Kentuckian, trying to make a difference one person at a time.